All right. Good morning, Redemption Tempe. Good to see you. Good to be here with you. My name is Benjamin. I'm a pastor here. I'm a pastor of communities and the arts, and uh, it's always a thrill to, to come together with God's people on Sunday morning to worship Jesus together. We're going to be looking at Psalm 19 today. I'm excited to be able to preach through it with you. Um, we have been in this series now. This is the fourth week we're in the series. The first week was, um, was with Will preaching on Psalm 1. Second week was Jim preaching on Psalm 8, talking about praying like a human. Last week was Ricardo in Psalm 13, um, talking about God's presence and power with us through all things, including suffering, when that psalm that says, How long, O Lord? And, and today we get to, get to look at Psalm 19. Uh, let's pray before we jump into this together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your power. Thank you that all things declare who you are in might and in goodness, in, in strength and in mercy. God, your creation cries out your name. It declares your glory. Your covenant with your people declares your glory. And Lord, through your spirit, you bring conviction to us, your people. And that is a glory to you. So God, would you just quiet our hearts this morning? We pray that you would send your spirit here powerfully and that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be heard and understood and embraced, and that we would rejoice in who you are, God, and you as a good God. Would you be here with us this morning? We pray this through your son, Jesus. Amen. So we're going to be looking at Psalm 19. If you don't have a Bible, please shoot your hand up, raise it nice and high. We want to make sure you can have a Bible to read along with us. We do show the scriptures on the screens as well, but it's sometimes nice to have that in your hand. If you're a person who doesn't own a Bible, uh, you do now. This is yours. Take it home. It's our gift to you. Um, we're, we want you to be reading God's Word with us as a community. That's what shapes us is the reading of God's Word together and enjoying and rejoicing in the gospel. Um, Psalm 19. So the Psalms are this amazing book. Sometimes it's written in, in the we, the plural. Sometimes it's written in the I, hear my cry, O Lord. But it's this prayer book of the people of God, a song book of the church and of the temple in its own context, and then here for us to hear God and to pray and sing toward him and glorify him in all things. Um, it, it's wonderful. Most psalms are poems. And that's very true for Psalm 19, especially clear, actually, with this. So if, you, if you're a poetry person, uh, you'll especially like this, looking at Psalm 19 and see its poetry. It's, it's a beautiful thing, and it's true, and it's eternally true. So um, God speaks. God speaks to us. He speaks through creation and all things he's made. And he speaks through the covenant with his people, which is specifically here seen in the word of God. The Torah, the, the covenant, the promise, that's what this covenant means. It means promise, the promise that God has made with his people. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And he's revealed himself to us. And he speaks, thirdly, through conviction to us personally as a sovereign God who knows all things and everything everywhere. He knows us personally, intimately. There's nothing hidden from him. And so he speaks in these ways to us. And, and that's what we're going to look at as we move through this. Uh, when I was young, uh, younger, I should say, um, I, lived in, I lived in Minnesota. There's a lot of lakes there. And so Minnesota has about 10 days of summer as opposed to Arizona's 1,000 days of summer. Uh, and in our, so we pack in our outside time because you got to get it in when it's really nice out, when it's not zero degrees. And we would often be on lakes. There's a lot of lakes up there. And, and I remember this time. 
when it was a beautiful summer night. My friends and I are on this boat, and we're cruising on, the, on this, this lake, and uh, it was just quiet and beautiful. The sky was clear, the stars over us, the, the water is calm. And there's this moment of silence when one of my friends, who was sort of reclining at the front, uh, looking up at the stars, just said, I don't know how anyone can look at these stars and not believe there's a God. How can you look at these stars, the beauty and majesty of them, and not believe there's a creator of some sort? It stuck with me. I remember it so clearly that moment, and I still think that's true today. We look, at, we look at the stars of God's creation, and it just declares who he is. It declares that he is God, he is creator, and he is glorious. How can we look at these stars and not believe there's a God? Uh, one theologian, John Calvin, said that the creation is the theater of God's glory. All of creation like we walk into a movie theater to see a screen, the world that God has made is the theater of the glory of God. And we, his people, through Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit, we, we, get, we get special VIP seating in that theater to see what's going on and how beautiful it really is. So Psalm 19 starts, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. This this voice that's heard this wordless chorus of billions of stars just proclaiming the glory of God. And I think right off the bat, we need to say, for this purpose of knowing this, the glory of God's a big term, right? If you, you, you're a Christian, you, you understand, yeah, it's important, it's weighty, I'm not exactly sure what it means, but I know it's important. Let, let's, let's hear, it, at least define it this way, it's a pretty simple definition. What is the glory of God? What do the, what do the stars declare? They declare his immeasurable goodness, which deserves all praise and honor in all creation. God's immeasurable goodness. It never ends. And all of us are called to praise. All of his creation is called to praise him in that. The heavens declare the, go- the glory of God. Um, the word in, in there, declare and proclaim, are words that are seen elsewhere. Uh, Genesis 15.5 says, when, when God's talking to Abraham, he's making a covenant with him. He's making a promise with him, an agreement and he says to Abraham, um, uh, God brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And so that word number is the same verb as declare. Yeah, a little different in usage, but the same idea that God brings out Abraham and says, look at those stars above. See all those? Through you, I'm going to make a people for you. You know what? We are those people. Not just ethnic Israel, but all who call on the name of the Lord are the people of God. Abraham is like our great, 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 great grandfather. It's our heritage, and God said to him, look at the stars, I will make people like that. It's a beautiful picture of what this is. And here, the stars singing loudly, though without words, about the glory of God. It says, going on in verse 2, Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. So you've got heaven in verse 1, declare the glory of God. And you've got in verse 4, through all the earth, heaven and earth. This is talking not just about skies. It's talking about creation. Genesis 1.1, the very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And Psalmist wants us to see this. Again, that theater of God's glory, that that's what creation is. It strikes me that we all walk under the same sky that Moses walked under or that Ruth 
walked under, or that Jesus walked under. The same stars that Jesus saw are the stars that we see. There's this, this glory and timelessness of God's creation in that, and we can relate there. The vastness of this witness of the skies, it's all proclaiming the goodness of God. God is good. God is eternal. God never ends. His goodness is immeasurable. It's a beautiful thing. And not only in positive ways, but Paul uses it in the book of Romans, and he says, he quotes Psalm 19.4, says there's no excuse. Everyone has seen this. It goes out through all the earth, the voice of God's creation. And in Romans 1, he alludes to it. No one has an excuse. Everyone has seen God's glory in creation, his eternal attributes. And therefore, we, we should know there is a God who is a creator and who is powerful. And then from that general revelation, from that big sense of the God, God speaking in creation, he, the psalmist narrows it down. Psalmist being David, by the way, King David. I should mention that. At the beginning of the psalm, we didn't, we didn't have it on the screen, but it just says, to the choir master, a psalm of David. That's actually part of the original Hebrew. That's, that's the Bible. It's David who's writing this as king. And he says, um, yes, uh, in them then, the tent in the skies has a tent set for the sun, 19.5, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Uh, I sh let's just take a moment to talk about the bridegroom leaving his chamber. When I first started looking at this, I thought, is this appropriate for church on Sunday morning? Like, what, what, is this, what is this picturing here? This is like after the wedding night and the dude's happy, but it's actually... It's actually is, it is appropriate. It is rated G. Uh, it, it is the bridegroom in history. What would he do is he'd get ready in his house or a chamber where he's getting ready. And the, the people of the town would come and gather who would join him at the wedding. And he would emerge from, that, from the doors and he would walk across town, across the streets to where his bride was. And then she would be brought out, and they would be part, take part in their marriage ceremony. And the whole, all the town was with him, rejoicing and following. And he was full of joy. It's his wedding day. So just like that, this is the sun, starting at sunrise, cruising across the sky to sunset every day like a bridegroom, full of joy. And the other one is, is a, an, another metaphor, but it's, it's similarly amazing here. Like a strong man runs its course with joy. Strong man being like a champion or an athlete with a course set before him, who loves to run that, who loves to take it and go forth. So you've got these two metaphors within the son of a bridegroom or an athlete running with joy, the sun across the sky, rejoicing in that. And it says, there's nothing hidden from its heat. Now, the Bible was written a long time ago. This is the Torah written 3,000 plus years ago, the New Testament 2,000 years ago. There are, there are difficulties with modern American culture for us to kind of see back and try to understand some of the things that seem funny. However, God has really blessed us in Arizona because when we talk about the heat of the sun in the desert uh, that happened in Israel, we get to also partake in that heat of the sun. So you should praise God how hot it is and how, how much our sun shines in the summertime. Uh, nothing is hidden from its heat. You don't have to explain that very much here, do we? We just know it. I, I once heard a, a musician who toured around a lot, and he was describing heat, and he said, uh, he said, in Florida, it's sticky and humid. And he's like, it's kind of like, a, 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 as we tour around, it's like this needy, needy girlfriend or boyfriend that is always like, oh, come on, come on. You're like, get off me. Come on, get off me. And like, come on. But in Arizona, the heat 
is like a UFC fighter. It's like, yeah, come on, I'm right here, I'm on you, I'm watching you. The angry heat of, of Arizona, of the Arizona desert. And I, I can see that. It just doesn't let up. It's all right there. It's in your face all the time. And, and likewise, that's, it's saying that this sun exposes everything. It gives life to crops. It gives life to us, but it also exposes who we are. And then we jump to the next verse in 19.7, and it feels a little jarring. We're talking about the stars, the glory of God in the sky, and then we're talking about the sun more specifically, and then we're talking about the law of the Lord. Like, what happened? It's not an accident. The psalmist writing this, David writing this, doesn't see this as two separate thoughts, but rather his thought is continuous through this. Nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect. It's whole. That's what perfect means. And, and it brings up this verse from the book of Hebrews 4. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's Hebrews 4 about the word of God. It's living and active. It's a sharp sword. It pierces us. And that's how it ought to be. So there's some sobering truth here that even as the sun is hot and nothing can hide from its heat, the word of God too exposes. We can't hide from the word of God. God knows every single thing about us that we've ever done and ever will do. Every single internal thing that we struggle with, our sins and our struggles and our sorrows and our joys, and God knows them all. And the word of God exposes them even to ourselves. And secondly, as we move into the law, we, we see covenant. God, God reveals himself through creation, through these billions and billions of stars above us singing the chorus of his glory, and he reveals himself through covenant. He speaks through creation, and he speaks through covenant. Covenant meaning promise, like with Abraham. I promise you, I will be your God. You will be my people. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I love you. I will bless you. I will give you commands and laws for your good, not because I have to be some boss kind of figure, but because I love you. Just like any of us parents tell our kids not to go in the street because of the danger of cars. That's not out of, that's not of some arrogance or authority. It's because we love our kids and we know what the world is. So God gives us laws because he loves us, gives us the law because he wants us to align with his will. He knows best for us. The law of the Lord is perfect whole, complete. It revives the soul. I love this because even in this, this transition from the law, from, from the sun to the law and the heat and everything's exposed to the heat, you guys know what this feels like. It's, it's really uh, apparent how thirsty we get when it's hot and dry and the sun is shining on us. And so even as the law of God is like a two-edged sword that exposes us, in the next line, it revives our soul. It's that cool glass of water that we drink when we're thirsty, and it just is so right in that moment, and to say, yes, this is, this is my thirst, and I'm quenching it. Same with this, the, the, the word of God. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, not the foolish here, the simple being anyone who desires knowledge, anyone who desires the wisdom of God. The Psalms are in this whole canon of this uh, wisdom literature that teach us how to live, how to relate to God and to man and to this world. Um, the, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. 
The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, and the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So we have these six lines that talk about the word of God. Five of them are specific about the, the law. The, the law of the Lord, the Torah, which is traditionally means instruction, but the five books of the Pentateuch at the beginning. And the testimony is next. And the precepts of the Lord and the commandments and then the rules of the Lord in 19.9. And we see there's, a, there's slight differences in these. It's like, uh, it's like this. It's like looking at a jewel. I know you guys all have like really big jewels in your lives and diamonds, and you, like, you, you carry them around and, and look at them. But you can imagine if you're not a diamond lover uh, what this is. You, you know, you turn it, and as you turn it, like a prism, different light emits from it. And there's different kind of shine and sparkle, and it's beautiful. And in the Word of God, this multifaceted sense of its wholeness and its goodness and its beauty for us comes out here. Um, precepts, meaning these directions, specific directions. Uh, the testimony, meaning something that bears witness and is, is bigger. Um, the, the rules of the Lord, sometimes meaning uh, something that's the judgments and, and can refer to like a bigger society. Not only you personally in your life, but how are we supposed to look as a people? And then there's this really funny one. The fear of the Lord is clean. So clean here means pure, like gold, refined gold. The fear of the Lord, why does he throw that in there? It seems odd. There's these five other descriptors. It should just be another six word for another word for instruction or command. But he puts the fear of the Lord in there. The fear of the Lord is, is hard for us because it's, it feels like, am I supposed to be afraid of God? Like, I, you know, I watch the news, whatever, whatever like news network you would decide to watch, it will, it will input fear into your life. That's kind of how they make their ratings. It feels like hey, we're afraid of everything. When's the next bad thing going to happen? And bad things do happen in our world, like we experienced a couple weeks ago with the shooting in Orlando, these tragedies. And then, and then when they're projected to us all the time, it can build a whole culture of fear where we're afraid all the time. And so when we read about the fear of the Lord, it feels like that doesn't, that's not very appealing. It's not very attractive. But here it's different. Let me try to explain the, the fear of the Lord. Um, when I was, when I was, I was a young buck, I was a snowboarder kid. I started when I was 15. I bought this Burton snowboard. I saved up money, got Burton snowboard, Burton bindings. I thought I was cool. Uh, there's a lot of cold weather in Minnesota, as you know, so there's snow and just be this, this anticipation. Oh, I'm ready for the snow. I want to get out there. And um, I get out there and find out I don't look cool at all snowboarding. It was a, it was a bad, bad mistake. But... <laughs> But I stuck with it and, um, and didn't have many people watching at the beginning. And, and it got decently well. And my friends and I were crazy and maybe stupid, but crazy, let's say. We were extreme and, and doing flips and all this fun stuff. And I was a decent snowboarder. And I had always dreamed of going to the mountains. And so I got a chance to when I was 18, 19, I think 19, drove out. Packed up my little Ford Escort, just packed it to the hilt. Found, a, found a, an apartment, got a job at this big resort called Snowbird, and I was a lifty. I was a guy who holds the chairlifts as it come through, and as people go, like, okay, here you go, and it goes up. Um, it wasn't a super cognitive job, but it was fun. I was on the mountain every day and, and uh, got a free pass. One time, I got, uh, my friends and I, went to the backcountry. So the backcountry is this, right? If, if my arms are like the boundaries of a ski area where they groom and they do avalanche stuff and they make sure it's safe, backcountry is the place over here. Not as safe, not groomed, but the risk has a reward that you get this amazing snow that's untouched. The pow, as you would call it. Uh, 
the fresh pow. No, it's true. That's, that's, that's a real thing. At least it was in my day. I don't know if the snowboarders still, still call it pow, but I do. And I got to go on this mountain and, and, and hike with backcountry. I was with a couple buddies. They kind of stopped hiking a little earlier and went down the mountain, and I kept going. And so I'm alone. And I get to this spot, this beautiful field of snow. It's steep, and there are massive pine trees that are sprouting up, and they're about 20 feet apart. And I, it's this perfect place to just weave through the snow, and it's two feet of fresh pile. Oh, it's glorious. It's like heaven on earth. And, and I, I put my bindings on, and I just stand up, and I remember just looking out at this magnificent field, this little speck of myself on this huge mountain. There's a thing that, that experienced people, for skiers and snowboarders will use, a term. It's respect the mountain. And there's a real reason why you respect the mountain. Because the mountain will wreck you real quick. And the mountain don't care if you get wrecked at all. It doesn't hurt a boulder or a tree when you smash into it. But it does hurt us. We are much more fragile than them. And I look out at this beautiful place. And that was a sense of fear of the mountain. I'm glad I'm there this reverence of something much greater than me that could end me quickly, and I respect it, but I love it. It's like a, a dangerous beauty, not a convenient beauty, but something that you want and are drawn to, but it's dangerous, and you have to respect and revere it. That's like the fear of the Lord. It's not one we run away from, but it's one we actually respect. We revere him and his beauty, and we are drawn into it. To stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon, something like that, is, is amazing. Some old ad said, um, with these two people standing at the edge of something amazing, a mountain or a canyon, it said, you've never felt so alive. You've never felt so insignificant. Something about bigger than ourselves, outside ourselves. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's about something bigger. It's about God's glory declared in all of these amazing pieces of his creation. So the fear of the Lord is clean and it endures forever, and we will always have that kind of fear, even in heaven, the perfect kind of reverence for God that will be with him. It's not afraid of, but it's rather reverence for. Um, finally, 1910 here, as it ends this section of the covenant of the word of God, it says, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. The word is sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. I think we have to take a moment here because we are Americans and Americans have in our bones this whole thing about uh, rebelliousness, revolutionaries. We're the ones who threw off bad authority, and we rule ourselves through a democracy. And yes, it is a gift, and yes, it is, it is wonderful in, in a lot of ways. But we still have it in us. And I think when we see anything about law or authority, it often can bring about negative perceptions, right? Like, like when you're driving on the street and a, uh, a police officer pulls you over, it's rarely the reaction that's like, I'm so thankful that this guy pulled me over. I'm excited for what he's going to tell me because he is upholding the law. It's not my reaction. I think it's pretty rare. But here we see David who rejoices in the law. What does the law do? It revives the soul like a, like a cold glass of water on a hot day. It, we rejoice in it. It rejoices our heart. It makes us wise. It enlightens the eyes. It gives wisdom to the simple that's what the law is for him. So often we just think the, the, the law is like the mean principle in Ferris Bueller's day off, you know? 
Ed's always trying to get Ferris. He's trying to catch him, right? And he's, he's so angry, he's like, I, would, I just want to throw him across a room. And his secretary says, well, with your bad knee, I wouldn't be throwing anyone, Ed. Uh, I love it. Ferris Bueller. Ferris Bueller's day off. Or the other one, the mean principal. I don't know why I was on that train, but, but that's what it is. Uh, the Breakfast Club, you know, this cool 80s movie and the principal's super mean. That's what we feel like the law is. You just do this or else. I'm always watching you. You mess with the bull, you get the horns, right? That's what the, that's what the law feels like. But David says, no, it's a delight. It, we rejoice in it. It gives us life and joy and peace. Um, I got a chance to be, go to Israel many years ago in 2010, and I remember overhearing a conversation. The conversation was with two, two Jewish guys who were young. I think they were in training of some sort to become rabbis. They were passionate, and they were happy. And they were talking about something that, that, that was interesting to me, like law and commandment. And the one guy was saying, hey, I have this thing. I don't know if I should do it or not. Uh, so there's some scenario in my life. It's going to be inconvenient. It's going to be a sacrifice. I just don't know. And the other guy's like, brother, it's mitzvah. It's mitzvah. It's all mitzvah. So do it. Take that risk. It's mitzvah. And I was like, what are they talking about? It's all mitzvah. Mitzvah is the word for command here in Psalm 19, the commandments of the Lord. It's mitzvah. And therefore... This man, this, 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 this paradigm of what these guys were talking about was so interesting. He was happy. He was excited to fulfill the commandments of God. He was excited that there were rules for him that he could live into. It's mitzvah. It's, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to take the risk because it's all mitzvah. And I think that's helpful, that, that this, this approach to the way David sees the law of God and the way we ought to see the law of God, that it's, a, it's something we rejoice in. It's a joy for us. It's mitzvah for us. It's all mitzvah. And law is tough to get to still. I get it. And the, the, so I think the, the value of gold when it says it's more than refined gold. I don't know how many of you are rocking a lot of gold these days. Um, some of you are, I know, and it's all good. I, I don't own a lot of gold. Uh, I don't have access to much gold. It doesn't really say much to me. I know it's valuable. You know what says a lot to me is cash, like cold, hard cash. That, that, that kind of chatter is what, what speaks my language. And so I want, to, I want to put forth a scenario to you guys to help understand the value of what the psalmist is saying about the law. So, so consider this. Someone comes to you and says, I will give you $100 million in cash right now. But I'll give it to you. No strings attached except for one thing, one condition. You can never read your Bible again. You can never listen to your Bible. You can never watch anything about the Bible. You can have no exposure whatsoever to the Word of God, Genesis, through Revelation. You can't have any, any way in any how in your life at all. And you'll get $100 million right now. Would you take it? Think about the good you could do with that much money. Think, uh, think of the things that make, might make your life easier or better. No worries about bills and things like that. Would you take it? Would you take the $100 million and give up the Bible for the rest of your life? You don't have to stop being a Christian. just can't read the Bible anymore. I mean, it's, 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 it's comprehensive. No cool posters on your wall. No biblical tattoos, even the original languages. doesn't matter. You can't get any Bible tattoos. Would you do it? Would you take it? I'll tell you what, this is a wrestle for me. It, it, I pause, I hesitate. But David wouldn't hesitate. He would shout, no, 
Never. I will never take that deal. A hundred million dollars is like dust on the ground compared to the preciousness of the word of God. It is life. It is eternal life. It endures forever. Why would I take these temporal, valuable things when I have the word of God that stands forever, that brings me joy and revives me and gives me enlightenment in my eyes and gives me wisdom? Why would I do that? Psalmist says that. David, as a psalmist, says, no, I would take I wouldn't take any amount of money, anything valuable in this whole creation in exchange for the beauty and power and truth of God's word to me. So if you're with me and you feel a little hesitation at that scenario, like, eh, I might, I might take the money. Can I take 20 million and read the New Testament? Uh, <laughs> but if, if you're with me in that hesitation, uh, ask God for some conviction through his spirit of how precious the word actually is and that we would come into alignment with that in our affections and our feelings. No, there's nothing more valuable than God himself revealed through his word. Through it we see Jesus. Through it we see all things glorified of God. We see his grace everywhere. So, again, that law part can be tough, but like, like that young man rejoicing, it's mitzvah, rejoicing in the commandments of God. And like David, who's, who just proclaims the wonder and beauty of the law, so ought we also be shaped by that. Um, I know we don't drive around. It's not the same for national and state laws. I know it's not like uh, you see a speed limit and you're like, that speed limit is, is sweeter than honey to me, right? <laughs> I know, I guess I get it, right? Yeah, that new parking ordinance is like fine gold in my life. Um, no, this is for God's law, his eternal law. In, in, in the law here in view is the eternal and holy will of a God who is both sovereign over all things and is good. And he desires his best for us, his children. He knows the best for us, and therefore he reveals his will for us that's best through his word, the Bible. And then the word, like my spectacles, like my glasses here, is our lens to see the creation and the glory of God in it. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Um, at the end, it, it comes to bear. God speaking through his creation. God speaking through his covenant with us through the word. And then finally, God speaking through conviction. When we meet the mountain that is God, what happens? His holiness. When the sun exposes us, what does it show? It shows us as beings made in the image of God, beautiful and valuable, but corrupted by sin. And the only hope in that moment is not to follow more commandments, but is to run to the one who fulfilled the commandments, who followed all of them, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, sent here to be the righteousness that we could not do ourselves, that we could not earn ourselves. And I think the confusion here is sometimes that, that Jesus, what he did and bought, totally just removes the law from our lives completely. There's this kind of two spectrums. One's called legalism, and one's called antinomianism. Legalism is this thing like you must follow the law to go to heaven. You must follow every jot and tittle of the law to get there, to be with God, to earn his favor. No. Well, you failed already. We all did. But the other side is, the law don't matter. I got Jesus. I mean, he's my guy. So, I mean, I don't really have to worry about obedience, because he was obedient, right? I don't have to worry about rules. 
I don't have to worry about delighting in the law of God like this psalmist does. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't matter to me. I'm going to live. I'm going to have a good time. I'm going to take my golden ticket to heaven that is Jesus, and I'm not going to worry about this. That's called antinomianism, and that's equally as bad as legalism. It's sinful. It's wrong. And it's not according to the will of God through his word either, like this psalmist. And so we meet Jesus, and he gives us his grace, and he purchases the righteousness that we can't earn. But after he purchases it, purchases it for us, gives us a new heart, we turn and we look at this with the psalmist and say, this revives my soul. This rejoices my heart. I am wiser. I am stronger. I am even, I'm more humble. I'm a better husband. I'm a better friend. I'm a better neighbor because of God's instruction to me, not in order to earn his favor, but because he's already put his love on me through Jesus Christ. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't condemn the law and hate it, but rather we should rejoice in it like, like David does, like the psalmist does. There's this piece in, in 1913. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Sorry, move to the, to the servant here. And I, I want to say, uh, we'll read it quick here. 1911, moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who could discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins, which is willful sins, the ones you know are wrong the hidden ones and the ones you know are wrong, all sin of us. Let them not, let those sins not have dominion over me. Let them not rule me. Dominion is the same word as dominate. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Dominion is an interesting piece here. David, David was a leader appointed by God, king of Israel, leader of the army. He knows what's going on around Israel. He knows it's hostile nations around them. Hostile in military sense. They want to come and kill Israel. They want to come and push them off the earth. But also spiritually, there's a lot of different gods that they believe in. They believe in little g-gods, a lot of them. And they're all kind of capricious and unpredictable. You don't know what's going to happen with them. And Israel stands alone in the middle of this vast culture of gods and idols and says, there is one God. He's the God of Israel. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His name is Yahweh, and he's put his blessing upon us, and he puts his blessing on all who will believe in his name and who will obey and trust his commandments. There's one God that stands against this, and so when he prays this, think about that sense of dominion, that it's, it was real to David, and it's, it's real to David in physical senses, but it's real to David spiritually, and it should be real to us. God, don't let my sins rule over my life. Help me. You alone are the God who can take them away. You alone are the God who can kill my sin, take away thy death, and give me life. And he's done it in Jesus Christ, who's defeated death and sin forever and ever on the cross. The dominion part of that. Even when David learned that early on when he battled Goliath, it's a tough fight with Goliath. Your little, your kid, you can't hold a sword. You can't wear any armor. You're going in with a staff and, and this like little leather strap sling thing with some stones. And this dude is, is eight feet tall and, and 500 pounds or whatever and has this sword uh, that's twice the size of your body. And he's just going to swing that at you. I mean, there's no, there's no good odds in that fight. That's, that's, that's a bad scenario. Before David goes into that battle, already learning about his trust in God, he says, today I'm going to slay you, Goliath. Because the battle isn't, isn't won with spears or swords. It's, the battle belongs to the Lord. It's God who will win the battle for me. 
And likewise, we pray that against the Goliath of our sin. We can't win. You cannot follow enough rules to ever beat your sin. And the call from God is, believe in me and I will kill your sin and I will take it away and it will not have dominion over me. I've sent my son, Jesus, to conquer death, to rise again so that death is defeated and I've given you my spirit as a gift to empower you. And with the spiritual eyes of God, we look at his word and we say, yes, it is sweet. I rejoice in it. It revives me. It is, it is better than gold. It is better than a hundred million or a hundred billion or a hundred trillion dollars. That's what his word is to me. And if you're not there, if you don't feel that, that much of strength in it right now, stay here. Stay in the word. Ask God for help. Because I'm there with you. It's tough. It's a struggle. It's a noisy world. It's a lot of other gospels that get preached to us that are false, that say this is what will make your life better or perfect or your salvation. And so we need to stay in the word and we need to stay in the word um, together that we read it and love it. The last part of this, Psalm 19, 14. After all of this, we see God speaking in creation. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Some estimates like a million billion stars in the whole universe, or a million trillion, or, or whatever. a lot, a lot of stars in the whole universe in creation, just singing this wordless chorus, God is glorious. Creation speaks of God and his glory, and then God speaks through his covenant, through his word to us, his promise, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, I have sent my son to buy you, to purchase you, to give you a new heart, to kill sin and that it won't rule over you, and now you can live in the spirit of God and the joy and peace of God, and you can look at the word and rejoice in it, that we would be a people shaped by this and be a witness to the world, like the stars in the sky shine down. We, too, are meant to be like stars. Uh, there, there's, a, there's a verse in Daniel 12. It says, Daniel 12, I think it's 2 and 3. Uh, is that up there? Somewhere in there, maybe, maybe not. Um, and it, it says that, that when we look upon those risen from the dead, there it is. And many of those who will sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. This is about the end. This is about meeting Jesus at judgment day and all things being made right. Verse 3, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. We look up and we see stars that shine down on us and declare the glory of God. And God, too, calls Abraham and says, look at those stars. I'm going to make your people like stars. And in Daniel, at the end of all things, we shine with the glory of God. We are called to shine like stars to show his glory, not only at the end, but even now. The kingdom is already here through Jesus Christ. What a beautiful thing as we shine. And as we pray this, pray this with David, 1914. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock my redeemer, my rock, this element of creation, like a mountain that's immovable and steadfast, and my redeemer, this title of the covenant when he rescued his people from the bondage of Egypt, just like he rescues us from the bondage of sin, my rock and my redeemer. Let my, let my words and my meditations be acceptable to you. Let my life be acceptable to you. This is the poem, Psalm 19. Every other word is a poem, and so I, I think it's fitting that we end with a, with a short poem about the love of God and, and the skies themselves. 
This is, this is from a hymn called The Love of God, which I think we're going to sing after this. And it says, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. That's beautiful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you are a creator who has made all things to reflect you and your goodness and your glory, your immeasurable goodness. Thank you that you're holy and right and perfect. Thank you that you've revealed yourself in this world and and in special ways, Lord, through your revelation in the word of God. God, let us meet you now. Let the prayers of our hearts individually and as a people be acceptable to you. The words of our mouth in all things, in our homes, in our, with our families, with our friends, in our workplaces, with strangers, in places we feel comfortable, in places we feel threatened, God, where the words and actions of who we are reflect your glory like the stars, your, your mercy and your strength and your steadfastness, and your righteousness, and your justice, and your grace. God, we can't do it. Would you shape us? Shape us through your spirit because of the good news of you, Jesus. Your love is stretching from the sky, from sky to sky, and it's not even enough room to show how much you love us, God. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.